would please to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Today we continue in our Tough Questions sermon series, uh, and we are going to be looking at various passages seeking to answer the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only way to God? Now, I don't know if that question strikes you as a tough one. I don't know if you think, well, that's kind of, a, kind of a no-brainer. I mean, yes, of course he is. But this question is a more important question than you may first realize. It's a more important question than may strike you at first glance. And I hope to make that case to you as we open up God's Word and uh, look at various, various passages. So in your outline, you will see uh, a tremendous amount of Scripture and a tremendous amount of passages that will guide us to the different parts of the Word of God that we're going to be looking at. But what I want to ask you to do is, I hope and pray that you have your own Bible or an app. I just think there's something about, I don't have a Bible verse for this, I just think there's something about seeing it in the version or the copy of the Scriptures that you interact with mostly, that's personal to you. I think it's important for you to see it for yourself. And I'm going to be calling your attention to some important facts that hopefully you'll be able to see in your own copy of the Scriptures as we take this time. Is Jesus the only way to God? And so the first answer to that, which is in your outline, is yes, because he says so. So you might think, okay, we can just kind of close in prayer right now. Um, But that is true. It is true that God himself, God, the Son, Jesus Christ, says that, that he is the only way to God, and I hope to show you that, because that's where we're going to start. What does Jesus say about himself? Well, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms, clearly and plainly, and many times, that he is the only way for us to be made right with God and have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Take a look at the following examples of what Jesus has to say about himself. So in John chapter 3, hopefully you're already there, if you look at verses 14 and following, Verse 14 says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, the first thing that we're looking at is Jesus says, whoever believes in him has eternal life. You say, well, what's that all about? Moses, serpents, I'm glad you asked. Keep your finger in John chapter 3 and flip back to the book of Numbers chapter 21. Because Jesus is speaking uh, at this time to Nicodemus and talking about something that he knows that Nicodemus would know about because he would be familiar with the scriptures. And so I want to make sure that we are familiar with the scriptures, so I want you to see it. Numbers chapter 21. And we'll go back to John in a minute, but let's take a look at Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor they sent out they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. Our pets' heads are full. No, I'm kidding. There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So, yes, 
That just happened, right? People are in the desert. They're in the wilderness. They are complaining. They can't see God's hand at work among them, or they're refusing to acknowledge it. They're complaining about the things that they don't like, and they all, there's no food. There's nothing that's, why have you brought us up out of the world? They're looking back upon where God has called them out of and saying, you know, maybe it wasn't that bad. And they're becoming impatient. That's exactly what it says, that they're becoming impatient on the way in verse 4. So verse 6 says that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Look at the next verse. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Right? Because nothing gets your attention quite like fiery serpents sent from God to make sure that you understand that he has a beef with you. And so when God is upset with his people, this is one of the things that he did. He sent the fiery serpents among them to get their attention. And apparently it really worked. Because verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 8, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And it wasn't the fact that there was something special about the bronze serpent. It was the fact that people would be looking at the bronze serpent in an act of faith, in an act of belief in God. It wasn't like, oh, if you just happen to glance at it, you automatically live. That's not how it worked. You look at the bronze serpent and you have faith in the word of God through Moses that if you look at this, God will forgive your sins, God will heal you, God will save your life. And so this account of what happened that we're reading about in Numbers is mentioned in the book of John. And when John is speaking to Nicodemus, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. See what he did there? So must the son of man be lifted up. We know he's going to be lifted up on a cross that whoever what believes in him may have eternal life. And very much so, not just believing that that's historically accurate, or not just believing that Jesus really lived and really died on the cross. It's not that, but it's believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and in so doing, God the Father was satisfied with his death on behalf of sinners like you and like me, and that he absorbed the wrath of God that would be coming towards us. Just like the people would look at the bronze serpent and live because they have faith that God would heal them, We have the opportunity, we the people have the opportunity to look to Christ and believe that his death was propitiatory, that he was a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, that it was satisfying to God the Father so that we might be saved, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's what Jesus says about himself. Whoever believes in him, uh, that person can have eternal life, who is the only way to God, Jesus Christ. What else does Jesus say? Uh, Take a look to John chapter 6. Flip over three chapters to John chapter 6. Now, we can't go through the whole chapter today, but you should read it if you haven't, or if you haven't read it even in a long time. It starts out with Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And people are following Jesus because of what he was doing for the sick. And we're told that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And if you look in verse 10, John 6 and verse 10, Uh, We read this, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down 
about 5,000 in number. So just the men numbered 5,000. If you make allowance for just like a reasonable number of women and children, we're talking easily between 15,000 and 20,000 people, and Jesus feeds them like it's no big deal with five loaves and two fishes, and so much so that everyone even has a doggy bag. Now, if you skip down to verse 35, we read this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What else does Jesus say about himself? Is Jesus the only way to God? Well, Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never hunger. You will never thirst. Basically, what Jesus is saying is this. The bread that I've just given, the bread and the fish, the food that I've just fed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people with, guess what? They're really happy. Everybody's really excited. And they're going to be hungry again in a matter of hours. So this was miraculous that he got to do this. It was great that he was able to feed the people and show that he was a miracle-working son of God. But he's letting people know, guess what? You're going to be hungry before long. Like, this is amazing for a little while. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. You can only find your fill in Christ. You can only be satisfied in Christ. And whoever comes to Jesus does not leave wanting. He is the bread of life. Now stay in that same chapter, skip down to verse 63. In verse 63, here's something else Jesus says. He said, his words are life. It is the spirit who gives life, John 6 and verse 63. The flesh is no help at all. That's a great verse for us to remember. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is a little, no, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Is Jesus the only way to God? Well, here's something else that Jesus says about himself. He says his words are life. They're not, they're not encouraging. I mean, they are, but they're not just that. They're not loving. I mean, they are, but they're not just that. They're not just, oh, that makes us feel warm. That's better than what I hear elsewhere. It's, it's all of that, but it's not just that. Jesus is saying, my words are literal life. The flesh is of no help. It's my words that are life. Stay in the Gospel of John and flip over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself for the first time as the good shepherd. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus employs this metaphor of shepherd and sheep from the very beginning of John chapter 10. And in verse 7, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. In fact, in verse 9, he specifically says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so we're looking to answer the question, is Jesus the only way to God? 
he literally refers to himself as the actual door. That's the picture he's painting for us. He literally refers to himself as the door that we, the sheep, walk through in order to find pasture, in order to find safety, in order to find nourishment, in order to find life. That's a pretty clear picture and a pretty clear statement that we enter by him. He is the doorway by which we enter into the kingdom of God. But there's more. Flip one chapter over to John chapter 11. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus says something for the first time that's also very powerful. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. See, Lazarus has died. And Jesus has a conversation with Martha. And she, in her grief, says this in John chapter 11, verse 21. Take a look at that. John 11, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus... Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus responds to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus has this, no, you don't get it, Martha, moment, right? Because in verse 25, Jesus said to her, hey... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, ever die. And I'm sure Martha's just like staring at, like, let's not be so foolish to think that since we know the end of the story that Martha expected that to happen, right? Like, that for sure was not the case. Martha was like, oh, I get it, you're going to... You're going to raise him now. This is awesome. Cool. Thank you. Love you. I'm going to step back and let you raise my brother from the grave who had already been entombed and is already wrapped up. So I'm sure she hears this and she's like, yeah, I'm grieving. This is like, I'm sure that's, I don't really know what you just said. Thank you. Okay. And then he proceeds to raise Lazarus from the dead, calling him out of his tomb by name and up from the grave he arose. And Jesus says he is the resurrection. That means he is the means by which anyone is resurrected and has life. And so Martha had faith. Yes, I know that he will be raised up on the last day. I know that will happen. And Jesus is like, yeah, not actually sooner, like soon, really soon. And raises her from, and raises him, excuse me, from the grave, showing that he has the power over even death itself. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we're looking forward to celebrating on Easter. Is Jesus the only way to God? He said he's the resurrection. I mean, he said he is the way that we would be raised from the dead. It's through him. It's through his power. It's for his glory that we would be raised from the dead and have everlasting life. Turn over to John chapter 14. John 14, and take a look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So Jesus said he is the way, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You say, that's brilliant. That's, yes, that's exactly what Jesus said. This is what he claimed for himself. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon looking at what we could glean from Scripture insofar as how we're to respond, perhaps to people who uh, would, be tra- would consider themselves transgendered. Now, you may recall me calling attention to what I perceive to be an often overlooked word when I quoted Paul instructing Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, or when Paul looked back on his own life at the end of 2 Timothy and said he had fought the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith, fought the good fight. If you remember correctly, the word that I was calling to our attention was what? The word the. The word the. Okay, because that word uh, is something that Paul employs because God has inspired him to do so because Paul has great concern that Timothy not fight the first fight that comes his way, but that he fights what? The good fight of faith. Which fight? The fight of faith. Similarly, here Jesus says that he is what? A way? No, he says what? He is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, if Jesus said he was a way, or one of the ways, then we would assume that there are other ways. There's other ways that you can get there. You can make a right, or you can make three lefts. Eventually, you will get there. But if Jesus said he was the best of all the ways, again, we would assume that there are more ways to choose from, but he's claiming to be the best. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is not comparing his way to other ways. Because there are no other ways to get to heaven. He is saying, I am the way. And then reemphasizes the exclusivity of his claim by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus the only way to God? Yes. Because he says he is the only way to God. Now flip over to John 17. John chapter 17, this is what we refer to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what I think is really the Lord's Prayer, because it's the longest prayer we have in Scripture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, he says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is Jesus the only way to God? Yes. Why? Because Jesus said eternal life comes from knowing him. Now, turn to John chapter 20, and as you do that, let me mention a couple of things, just a couple of side notes. As you turn to John 20. First of all, there are four Gospels. And thus far, we've spent our entire time in just one of them, the Gospel of John. Why is that? Well, that's because of the purpose of this book, the purpose of the Gospel of John, which you can read for yourself in John chapter 20 and verse 30. Take a look at John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. These are written, it's plain as day, right there, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we should read the Bible, right? How much of it? Exactly. But if you are an unbeliever, if you're a seeker, uh, if you're uh, even a skeptic or a critic or a hater or anything other than a Bible-believing Christian, you especially should read this book, the Gospel of John. It was written with you in mind. Again, verse 31, these things were written so that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so if the Gospel of John is something that is unfamiliar to you, you should really get into it. Each of us should, but especially if you're like on the fence about Jesus, or if you're like, you know, heck no, I want nothing to do with it, I don't believe it at all, you need to know that this book was written with you in mind, that God would work through the reading of his word to help you understand and help you to believe in Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, and be saved. And so I would encourage you to read this book. You can read anything in the Bible. It's all God's word. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And God uh, worked through all the writers of scripture to write everything he would want us to know. But if you are an unbeliever, if you are a skeptic, I would encourage you to read the gospel of John. Take some time to read through it and see how the Lord might act in your life. I remember when we used to do street evangelism back in New York, we would give out, sometimes we would give out just exact gospels of John, something small, unintimidating, saying, read this on the train, read this, work through this, just read this, because it's something that's so effective and so powerful and so used by God in showing people truth. And so if that's you, I just want to encourage you to read this entire book. I want you to read the whole Bible. You might want to start in the gospel of John. Another side point. The points I've made thus far, I think you would agree, they're not terribly difficult to discern. You say, well, that's because you're a pastor. That's literally not true at all. Uh, Remember, this gospel in particular was written for an unbeliever to understand and believe. And so I just want to pause and just make sure that I make this point clearly. You can read your Bible and you can understand your Bible. Just don't forget that. God in his kindness has written the Bible in such a way so his teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. You can read your Bible. You can study your Bible and you can understand your Bible as it is, as it is. No Greek, no Hebrew. You can read your English Bible. It's unbelievably reliable. Uh, You can read it, you can understand it, you can study it, and you can uh, glean great truth from it. It just takes time. It takes some time and it takes some effort, but it doesn't take much time or much effort. And I just want to show you that quickly before we move on. So go back to John chapter 3 if you would. Go back to John chapter 3 and take a look at verse 14. I think sometimes people see preachers um, preaching the word of God uh, and they think, wow, that's great. That really helped me understand. And I don't think I would have understand that had he not done that. And so therefore I can't understand it if I, if I try to do it on my own. And that's completely not true. It's like looking at uh, Michael Phelps competing in the Olympics and saying, wow, I could never do that. I could never swim. Well, no, you can't do what he does, but you can swim. 
probably. Like, you probably can't do what Michael Phelps does. You're probably not going to medal, but you could probably to some, like, you could stay afloat. You could swim, okay? Now, I'm not saying that I'm the Michael Phelps of preaching or that anyone at Grace Fellowship Church is that. Just realize how that came out. That wasn't in the notes. Hadn't thought through that illustration. Not saying that at all. But what I am saying is just because you see somebody do something you can't do doesn't mean you can't touch it at all. Does that make sense? I want to show you something in John chapter 3. When we were in John 3 before, Jesus spoke of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. I took you to Numbers 21 in order to understand what he was talking about. Maybe you think, wow, look at how he just knew that that was in Numbers 21. He really knows his Bible. Um, Not true. Okay, look at John chapter 3 and verse 14. And if your Bible is equipped with cross-references, just raise your hand if right after the word and you see a little letter, like a letter D. Mine, Mine says letter D. So raise your hand if you see that in your Bible. Okay? Now, that's because your Bible is equipped with some type of cross-reference system, and it says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and if I'm thinking, what is he talking about? Now, I know what he's talking about, but I don't know where it's found. I don't memorize that. I wonder where that's found. I look at letter D, and I go down here to letter D, and I see Numbers chapter 21. Hopefully, you're way less impressed with me and also way more uh, uh, confident in your reading of the Scripture. That doesn't take a—it takes some time. It doesn't take a ton of time. I didn't get out nine different books. It's like, what's he talking about? D, Numbers 21. Oh, well, go back to Numbers 21. Then you go back to Numbers 21, and you see it right there. So with a little bit of time, more than just reading the Bible and just saying I did it and just checking off a box, you can glean understanding. You can gain a depth of insight that doesn't require hours and hours and hours of study. But if you put in a little bit of time beyond just reading your Bible, you're going to be able to connect the dots. You're going to be able to understand the word of God. And you have to be willing to do a little homework, but not, not a lot. But you can understand your Bible. You can read your Bible. You can understand it without me. You can read it with friends. You can read it to your kids. I mean, we had a family devotion time recently, and uh, it was just yesterday, actually, and we were reading something in the Psalms. And the kids were wondering what David was talking about and why he was so down, to which I replied, I don't know. And we started looking at, it's great to be a pastor's kid, right? Tons of insights. And we looked at the text, and he mentioned that his bones were weary. And so my daughter, nine years old, says, he says that his bones are weary. Maybe he's like, maybe he's not feeling well. She's nine. She's a pastor's kid. She just saw the word bones and weary. She's nine. That's not like, that's just reading it for what it is. Like, you can think through these things. You can have these discussions with your kids. You can have these discussions with friends, and don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Because sometimes you can be so afraid to say, I don't know, you're like, I'm not going to touch it. I don't look like an idiot. I'm just not going to touch it. So if I say it, just say, I don't know. And if you don't know, you don't know, and you look into it. And I love helping people gain understanding, and that's why I'm looking forward to the Elder Forum tonight. I've been, pe- I've been speaking with people who are asking how to apply certain passages, particularly surrounding the issues of transgenderism and abuse, and people wanting to know, what is it like to turn the other cheek when it comes to abuse? That's a great, great question, and there's a great, great answer. Let's talk about it, but get into your Bible and read it and grow in it and love it. And it really will become familiar to you in such a way that you'll find yourself missing it and longing to see what God says on a certain topic or matter or issue 
And if there's a way that I or someone else can help you along the way, I'd be happy to, not as an expert theologian, but as a fellow Bible reader and Bible lover. Now, getting back to our question today. The tough question we're answering today is, is Jesus the only way to God? And if you've been paying attention, I've been answering the question based on what Jesus has been saying about what? Himself. Perhaps you think that doesn't really prove anything. The fact that Jesus says he is the only way doesn't prove he is the only way. It just shows he claimed to be that. But we need to look to someone else. We need to look at something else to prove it. And you might say that's circular reasoning. That doesn't add up. But here's what you need to remember. That the word of God is self-attesting. Self-attesting. Jesus Christ, the word of God, he can't be proven by making an appeal to another outside authority because if you do that, then the Bible itself would be what? Under that authority. Does that make sense? So don't hear me saying there's no evidence because there's a preponderance of evidence. But it's never going to bring one full circle. Why? Because the ultimate authority is what? The word of God. And so when we're asking Jesus to prove himself, it is not wrong or it's not a cop-out for you to say, well, this is what Jesus says about himself. Does that make sense? There's a certain amount of circular reasoning that is appropriate when you're appealing to or trying to talk about the highest authority. And so if we were to take the word of God and compare it to or put it under the authority of another, it would then be subordinate to whatever thing or person an appeal was made to prove the word of God to be true. Does that make sense? So when you say that's circular reasoning, it is, and it's okay. It's circular reasoning, and it is, and it's okay. Because any argument for the absolute authority for the word of God must ultimately appeal to itself for proof, lest the authority would not be absolute or highest. So I don't know if I've just lost you in saying that, or if you found that to be helpful. I would love to unpack that for you a little more, but we don't have the time. But Lord willing, we'll get into that a little more in some future sermons throughout this year, particularly as we get into the book of Acts. Now, is Jesus the only way to God? Uh, Roman numeral number two, yes, because he is the only mediator between us and God. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says this, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What is a mediator? Well, a mediator in this case is someone who intervenes between two people to restore peace. Someone who intervenes between two people to restore peace. And we're told that Jesus Christ is the one mediator. Not one of the mediators, right? But there's that word again. The one mediator between God and And us, the only way to God is through him, which leads us to our next point. Is Jesus the only way to God? Yes. So getting this message out should be a high priority for Christians. Since Jesus is the only way to God, getting this message out should be a high priority for Christians. Listen to me. What you say about Jesus or don't say about Jesus, can have eternal consequences. That's not pastoral, like, melodramatic hyperbole. It's the truth. What you say about Jesus, or fail to say about Jesus, can have eternal consequences. You see, oftentimes skeptics of Christianity think it's quite frankly unreasonable or unfair For God to require faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is what we call the 
exclusivity of Christ. And in an age where pluralism and options win the day, this is unbelievably unpopular. Oftentimes, Christians will respond by going too far in seeking to make Jesus perhaps more palatable to those who need to know the gospel. And although they think they're doing this for the lost and for the glory of God, in reality, they do an unbelievable disservice to the hearer and do not bring glory to God. Because in avoiding the exclusivity, the exclusivity of Christ, they move towards what we call inclusivism. And inclusivism is the belief that people receive God's gift of salvation on the basis of Christ's atoning work on the cross, but that the sinner doesn't have to believe the actual gospel in order to receive salvation. Does that make sense? So Jesus made a way, right? And then there's lots of different ways. Like we know that it's really Jesus, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But there's different ways to be saved. And Jesus just made that even a possibility for us. So he made a way, but there's a lot of different roads that you can get there. And some people get there by really knowing Jesus. And some people get there by like quasi or kind of knowing Jesus. Inclusivism would teach that the gospel is true and that Jesus is the only savior, but that salvation is available through other means, including non-Christian religions. Some refer to these people as anonymous Christians. People who are Christians and don't even know it. Christians who don't even know that they've been saved, but they happen to have fallen in. And inclusivism is a dangerous teaching. It's dangerous for us and dangerous for the lost. It's dangerous for us because inclusivism can cause us to look at that lost coworker you know or that person in the dorm room next to you or that really nice Catholic neighbor or that super sweet, sweet elderly relative or the person you sit with in class or at lunch, whatever, that person you know who's not a Christian but seems as nice or quite frankly nicer than the Christians that you know, inclusivism causes you to look at these people with less urgency. You think of people in far-off lands who have never heard the gospel, who have never had the opportunity to accept or reject Jesus, who have never even heard his name. Inclusivism causes you to look at them with less urgency. And that's dangerous. Dangerous for Christians to be under the wrong impression that not all the lost are really lost, and they'll make it in the end after all. It's dangerous for unbelievers because due to our decreased urgency, we perhaps might give them the false notion that they're really fine or they'll eventually come around. I was 29 years old before I ever lived on the ground floor of anything. And that's not uncommon if you grew up in a city and spent your life in apartment buildings. Mom still lives in the apartment I spent most of my life in, and it's six stories above the ground. Now, we never had a real tragic fire in our apartment building growing up. There's 72 apartments, there's 12 apartments to a floor, six stories. And we never had a real fire to speak of, something that there was loss of life. But on the rare occasion we did, maybe, maybe like two or three times in the 20 years that I lived there, we'd have to evacuate and the elevator was not an option, so we'd have to what? We'd have to take the stairs. Now, anytime that happened, you were aware that this was not a drill. This was the real deal, and you could smell a little bit of smoke. There wasn't like flames flying through, but just something was up. And you couldn't see the fire, but you could, you could tell this was, this was kind of, you know, real life. And the sixth floor in mom's building is the top floor, so you can go up one flight to the roof. And if you push that door, it said an alarm would sound, but the alarm never worked because we went up there all the time and did things we weren't supposed to do. But anyway, you need to go down, and you need to get out of the building. And so we would... 
come out of our apartment and run into the stairwell and go down. Um, and, 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 and as we went down, we'd see neighbors entering, right? I'm on the sixth floor. We come and see on the fifth floor, we're going down. And, you know, here come the Crosdales who live in 5C. And here come the Favuzas who live in... Like, you see your neighbors as you go down. And we're all walking down. Oh, I can't believe this. Is everything okay? Do you, have, you need help with the kids? Whatever. We all walk down the stairs. Inclusivism is me heading down the stairs, seeing one of my neighbors enter the stairwell and go up. But I think it's okay because at least they're in the stairs. Does that make sense? Surely they'll figure it out eventually. I mean, there's more people going down than going up. I mean, they're so close. They're kind of on the right path. They're walking the wrong direction, but they'll get it. I mean, they could go up to the roof, and if you go to the roof, you can walk on the roof to a fire escape. Maybe that's where they're going. I don't know. But hey, we're just glad they're in the stairwell. Inclusivism, inclusivism, excuse me, is me seeing that purpose and going, ah, and letting it go. They're running with the best of intentions in the wrong directions, but hey, at least they're in the stairwell. But in reality, whether they're in the stairwell or in their home, they're going to die because the place to be is outside on the ground across the street in safety, and they're never going to get there by going up. There is one exclusive way to run, and that's down and out and across the street. And we have an exclusive message of salvation that we need to tell people because being in the stairwell doesn't do them any good if they're running up. And that is why this is a tough and important question to answer. And that's why people need to know truth like you see in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. That there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Don't let a lost and dying world's hatred for Jesus make you think you need to apologize for him. In fact, doing that would assert that he could err. It's not good. Don't let a lost and dying world's hatred for the gospel make you think that you need to make him more palatable. You don't need to make Jesus more palatable for anyone. You shouldn't be a jerk. Make sure that you're palatable. But 1 Corinthians 1 says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Galatians Uh, Chapter 5, Paul says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He's basically saying, I'm not softening. These people, these Judaizers, want me to preach that circumcision is still required to be saved. If I'm still doing that, why am I taking the heat? I'm preaching the true and living gospel. The gospel is offensive to people. If you remove the offense of the gospel, you remove the gospel. And the gospel is exclusive, and that is what people hate. If we just said, hey, this works for us, the Jesus thing, cross, it's awesome, but you, hey, you do you, boo-boo. Do what works for you, so you're fine. I'm sure there's lots of different ways, so just try your best. Do you know how much less flack we'd get as Christians from a lost and dying world? No one would give a rip. But when you preach Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. When you tell someone there is one mediator between them and God, 
When you go into the stairwell of a burning building and tell someone they actually must run down in order not to die, you're not being an inclusivist but an exclusivist. But there really is only one safe direction to run, and that's to Jesus. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. First John 2 and verse 12, I am writing to you, little children. Why? Because your sins are forgiven, what? For his namesake, only Jesus saves. And last but certainly not least, there really is only one sacrifice for sin. 1 John 2 and verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6 in your outline. At the end of that chapter, started out with thousands, he's now left with only his disciples. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are, here it is again, the Holy One of God. The gospel is exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. And praise be to God that he makes that clear in his word and gives us a message to tell other people who need to know the saving, sovereign grace of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you've opened our eyes to your word, to your truth. Thank you, Lord, that uh, the only way to God uh, is something that you have made known to, uh, to us, to, to, to many of us, to perhaps most of us. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to your truth. For those of us who know you, remind us of the importance of the exclusive work, the exclusive message of the gospel that we have to give to others. And for those who know you not, Lord, would you have mercy on souls even now would you save souls and call people to yourself for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.